Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in European Politics. I'm Tim Jones, and my guest today is Mark Adelaide, author of Russia's War Against Ukraine, The Whole Story, published in August by Melbourne University Publishing. Note, this is The Whole Story. It's a short book written in the author's words by an outsider for outsiders and seeking to answer why Putin launched his full-scale invasion of Ukraine in the immediate, long and very long terms. How did two so similar and so different nations emerge? How can outsiders separate national myths from true origin stories? Who started the war and how will it end? Mark Adelie is a Russianist who became a historian of the Soviet Empire, as he puts it, largely due to his encounter with Ukraine and its history. Hansen Chair in History at the University of Melbourne, he was born and raised in southern Bavaria and educated at the universities of Erlangen, Tübingen, Moscow and Chicago, where he did his doctoral research on Soviet World War II veterans under Sheila Fitzpatrick. Before the book we're discussing today, he published Soviet Veterans of the Second World War in 2008, Stalinist Society in 2011, The Soviet Union A Short History in 2019, and Stalinism at War in 2021. Mark, welcome. Thanks for having me. Well, a lot of books on the war have been published over the last six months. Um, I've interviewed quite a number of uh, the, the authors, and there's a lot more to come. Uh, as you've written yourself, some are good and some are, as you put it, problematic. What made you decide to join in? Well, well let's hope I'm in the, the first category of the good <laughs> and the problematic. But yeah, we, we shall see. Well, when I, when I started to write this book, of course, there weren't many books, right? There was nothing. Uh, there was an earlier book uh, explaining a very good book by Serhii Kelchik uh, on uh, the first invasion, right? The 2014 invasion, hmm. uh, which was first released as in it's it's within the um, uh, what everyone needs to know series. Um, and it, there's two editions of it. And I understand a third one is coming. Um, there were also some things in German, some very good ones, um, but in English there wasn't so much. And uh, in many ways, that flur. I'm I'm kind of I think uh, part of several or quite a large group of uh, scholars who who reacted to this war by uh, writing about it. Um, there was uh, an enormous amount of historical disinformation and misinformation out there. There was a lot of shoddy history uh, in the public sphere. And I felt that as a historian, I had the duty to try to correct the record. Now, I was, of course, not the only one. And there's other historians out there um, uh, who have since uh, written about it. I have mentioned Yekelchik. Um, uh, Serhii Plochi has um, written a very good uh, history of this war. Um, which in many ways fits together with mine uh, very well because it's much more of a history of the war itself, while mine is really a, his- a prehistory of how we get to the war. And it fits together very well with 
Plochy because I draw very extensively on uh, Plochy's work um, for my history of Ukraine. Um, and of course, historians were not the only ones. There were, uh, there's quite a few pundits, there's political scientists, there's some very good journalistic accounts now. So, and that, that uh, is already a, a little historiography uh, on, on in, in itself. Um, and a, a debate often between historians, but also between historians and, and non-historians uh, about uh this history so that that will become its own subfield um but yes I, that that's i think what i would, would say why so I, I i would say i didn't actually decide to join in because there was nothing to join in yet when i joined in well I, um it is a very interesting mixture actually because you you begin with um quite a as i say it's a short book but you begin with quite a detailed description of the battle for kiev there's a there's quite a bit of medieval history there's a character study of putin's late life crisis the um you know the the, the macho man uh, the aging macho man and a sort of comparative psychological his, historical psychological study of russia and ukraine what made you choose that mix not sure I chose that mix the mix chose me probably in the process of writing the book so um as I said before, I think it's at its core, it's a prehistory of the 2022 invasion. Um I do go back all the way, as you point out, to the Middle Age, Ages and Kievan Rus, and then um uh the the division essentially of the Kievan Rus into what becomes the Russian Empire, um the first the Muscovite and then uh, the Muscovite Rus, and then and then um the Russian Empire and what what later becomes Ukraine, uh, but I do that largely in order to try to set the record straight. So I'm implicitly arguing with both uh, a version of the of the Ukrainian national history, which uh, sees kind of a straight line more or less from Kiev to uh, today, and uh, likewise with the Russian. Um, with the Russian national narrative, which uh, claims Kiev, the uh, Kievan Rus for itself. So that's why I'm going so far back. Um, the, the, the main, I mean, where, where I see the, the division of, of kind of a modern Russia and the modern Ukraine uh, emerge is in the early 20th century and in, in particular in the Ukrainian and the Russian revolutions of 1917 and the following um, wars of the Romanov succession. Um, and then uh, in the, uh, once the two more recent national states of Russia and Ukraine are born in 1991, um, the divergence between the two, and they're, they're quite uh, distinctly different trajectories since 1991. Nevertheless, I don't see anything that made this war inevitable in 2022. So there's these big structural forces which drive the two nations apart. Um, but there's also a lot that continue to unite them. Family ties, of course, a, a shared history, um, uh, related cultures, languages which are mutually understandable, 
a lot of bilingualism. Um, Russians went to to work in Ukraine. Ukrainians worked in Russia. Uh, economic ties, and so on, and so on, and so on. Um, and uh, the only real reason uh, why Russia went to war in 2022 is Vladimir Putin, and that that's why I end up with trying to understand uh, the the man. Um, uh, and his psychology. So, so that's I think the the overall way how that mix developed in a way in in a in an attempt to understand what what happened, why it happened, and in an attempt to also engage with some of the um, the big misleading stories I encountered in the public sphere. Yeah, I was going to ask you on that specifically because it seemed to me there are two things that you address in in a bit of detail repeatedly. One is the 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 core the immediate causes of the war not not the historical but the immediate causes and also you address uh, several times the the notions of um, Ukrainian forces and Ukrainian society being dominated by Nazis and the far right did did you feel you had to is that part of the political debate in Australia or is that something you felt you had to address particularly? Yeah, it's part. I mean, it's part of the political debate worldwide. Um, and I mean, the political debate I uh, follow uh, includes both uh, the Russian and Ukrainian debates, um, the German debate, where you know I uh, still have uh, connections both um, personally and in in scholarly terms. Um, I, I I hail from Germany originally, um, and the American debate, and the Australian debate, and everywhere that notion um, that somehow uh, this was a fascist society and a fascist regime uh, was quite prominent, um, in particular to my puzzlement on the political left. Um, uh, so, yes, that that was something I felt needed to be. Um, spelled out and um, to some extent debunked, but also explained what the historical background to these these um, these claims are and the extent to which you know what, what is the role of the far right in in today's uh, um, Ukraine, but also what's the role of uh, the far right in um, in the history of the 20th century in Ukraine. Yeah, actually, another myth you you address, um, and it's a very good point. Actually, you, you you at the very beginning you talk about the the, the initial stages of the full scale invasion, and the fact that the battle for this is a quote: the battle for Kiev was won by Ukraine's own artillery and modernized Soviet Soviet era tanks, and not NATO weaponry. And you make the point that these old tanks they're using they're essentially used as as mobile artillery. Um, could could you expand on that point? I think it's a very interesting point. Well, I think I I felt this needed to be made because if you were if you um, were uh, following the reporting as well as much of what happened in in social media at the time of the Battle of Kiev, uh, you would be uh, uh, you could be forgiven to thinking that somehow. Um, uh, NATO supplied weaponry, in particular shoulder-fired uh, anti-tank uh, weapons, uh, were the major um, contributor. And I, I felt that was actually that was, I mean, that was factually not not correct. 
uh, although those pl- did play some role, but um, um, it was it also was a bit self congratulatory from um, NATO countries to uh, highlight these these weapons, given that um, essentially uh, NATO uh, and the and the European countries in particular. Uh, had failed to actually adequately um, equip uh, Ukraine for its own defense. So I I did feel that this this point needed to be made um, because there was a little bit too much um, self congratulation on the uh, on the on the side of of countries who had in fact not provided uh, the lethal weapons uh, required um, or requested uh, by Ukraine. Um, on the because you know people felt that this would somehow provoke uh, Russia and um, so I think that was one of the reasons why I I felt that point needed to be uh, made quite explicitly. Yeah, it was a good, it was a good one. So anyway, get, get, getting into the real uh, meat of the book, you begin with a <clears throat> a potted history of Ukraine, starting with what you call the chain of fortified outposts. Uh, linked to the Principality of Kiev and the Kievan Rus myth that grew out of this. Can you explain how this became so critical to the to the joint national mythologies, but in particular Russian mythology and, and the truth behind it? Well, I think the, the point I'm trying to make is that there's no straight line, you know, from, from medieval Kiev to uh, modern Moscow or Petersburg or... Petrograd or Leningrad or uh, you know Moscow today, uh, but there's also no straight line from uh, from um, medieval Kiev to modern Kiev, that is to the modern Ukrainian nation and the Ukrainian nation state. Um, the reason why uh, this um, I'm following the story so far back is because both sides um, uh, uh, claim medieval Kiev as uh, their um, their ancestor. And of course, they are both right in a way that this is where a um, East Slavic um, uh, culture took place. Uh, but that, of course, also uh, includes uh, Belarus. Um, but uh, they're wrong insofar as there's no um, no continuity of statehood uh, between uh, the Kievan Rus and either the, the Muscovite state, which then becomes the Russian Empire, or um, the uh, much later Ukrainian uh, state. Um, so I think the, the importance for the Russian side of that is to uh, lay claim uh, on Kiev also means laying claim on Ukraine, right? Um, if that is part of your prehistory, you are the continuation of uh, this, then of course the Kievan lands, the Ukrainian lands more generally are sort of part of your your heritage. And that's why uh, this is being defended so vigorously uh, on the side of uh, Russian nationalist historians ever since, and Russian imperial historians ever since uh, the 19th century. There seems to be a linked myth. I mean, it comes later, um, a, a Ukrainian national myth around uh, that maybe was pushed by Grushevsky's notion of a, quote, more 
European and more democratically minded East Slavic people uh, compared to the, the the brethren under the Iron Fist of the Muscovite princes and later Tsars further east. Um, is that as yes? You seem critical of that. Is that was I right to read it that way? Yes, I mean I'm a. I do I do follow um, um, and I I had some some uh, intense debates with some uh, medieval uh, historians um, and early modern historians who not always uh, who who sometimes see this a little bit differently, but. Um, the uh, you, if we're talking about a Ukrainian nation and a kind of a modern Russian nation, um, they're really, I mean, the Ukrainian nation in particular uh, is a uh, 19th century and early 20th century phenomenon. There are, of course, cultural differences between the regions we now think about Ukraine uh, and the peoples living there, um, but uh and they 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 develop they they deliver the kind of raw material for the nation builders uh, of the 19th and 20th century um but you know this is a this is not a uh very long history in 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 terms of you know history of humanity if you like or history of certainly the russian empire uh, has a has a longer history but more importantly, I have a real problem, a fundamental conceptual problem, I think, with the notion of a national character, which is somehow unchanging over uh, hundreds of years. Uh, it is true that the lands which are now Ukraine uh, have fundamentally different political and cultural influences uh, and uh, influences which are more uh, Western and Polish, um, but also indigenous um, uh, democratic uh, traditions, but they're very discontinuous. Is the one thing, right? They, they 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 come and go in many ways. Um, but the other point is also that uh, this history did not make Ukrainians immune to the totalitarian temptations of the 20th century. Um, you know, as many other. Uh, <laughs> peoples uh in 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 that in that time so uh i i feel um while i understand why you would construct such a history um and would highlight these uh these um uh democratic or um more participatory uh aspects of your own history over others um that's not the whole story, right? Yeah. Well, as for the the Hetmanate and the Cossacks, uh, as one of the outsiders you're writing for, it's never been entirely clear to me whether this is a this is a period of history or a a cultural uh, memory that that Ukrainians want to reclaim or should reclaim. Is is this in any way something to be proud of? Well, it's definitely something that is being reclaimed uh, and has been reclaimed for a very long time. I mean, the the uh, the the Cossack hetmanate and and the whole Cossack traditions are, are central to uh, the notion of what it is to be Ukrainian. Now, whether or not you should be proud of your ancestors is a you know fundamentally a political question in 
in my mind, you know, you might be inspired by your ancestors or by part of what they did. You might also be repelled by your ancestors and by part of what they did, right? Mm -hmm. um, so uh, I can I can uh, see uh, very well that you would want to highlight, for example, the kind of participatory uh, aspects of uh, the political structure of of uh, the the Cossacks in particular Hetmanat. Um, but you might be repelled by the anti-Polish and anti-Jewish violence, uh, uh, which were committed uh, in the name of um, uh, these these groups as well. So I don't think it's very healthy to simply uh, say I embrace one part of that history and I don't don't talk about the other. I, it, it seems to me that a a, a mature uh, modern democratic nation uh, needs to be able to do both. Um, but, you know, that's sometimes a big ask. And uh, this is something uh, my chosen country of Australia is is struggling with as well. So uh, it's not surprising that that that's not that's not perfectly straightforward. And are you I mean, you identify um the the moment where uh Bolshevik troops were in Ukraine and heading for Kyiv and the Rada declared independence, you say, quote, this moment, not medieval Kyiv or the early modern Cossack state, is the real origin of modern Ukraine as a nation state. Is that um is that moment as central to uh modern Ukrainian culture and modern Ukrainian national myth as you think it should be? Yeah, maybe not, although it depends uh, who you talk to in that case. There is, um, among um, liberal and democratic Ukrainians, in particular historians, of course, there is quite a, um, quite some interest in, in that period. The reason why I it seems to me it is an absolutely essential period is that is the first time a modern Ukrainian state is created, not a Cossack state, um, not um, a medieval state, which is, well, it wasn't a state, actually, a medieval realm, or which is held largely together by uh, by kinship ties of the, the, the ruling uh, class and um, religion, um, but a modern nation state um, comes into being and uh, tries to defend itself um, against uh, the Bolshevik uh, threat, uh, which is very much seen as a Russian threat. Um, and which also you can actually see a straight line in a way of from that state, that essentially failed state because it it gets um, it gets uh, divided between, uh, the more successful successor states of the Romanov Empire, which are Poland on the one hand and um, Bolshevik Russia on the other. But um, the way this gets integrated, or uh, the, the the eastern part of um, Ukraine gets integrated into uh, the Soviet Union, is as uh, the as a union republic. Um, so Ukraine uh, maintains a kind of pseudo-state formation. It maintains borders um, and it maintains uh, a notion that 
uh, there should be a state for Ukrainians. And it is that state which essentially then uh, breaks free of the Soviet empire uh, in, in 1991. So without understanding what happens uh, in 1917, 18, 19, 20, 21, and 22 uh, to the lands that are Ukraine and to people who understand themselves as Ukrainians, um, you don't uh, understand how we get to uh, the uh, modern um, uh, the modern Ukraine, the, the contemporary Ukrainian state. Um, what is in terms of historical memory, what is attractive about this original Ukrainian state is that it was decidedly Ukrainian. It was, but it was also decidedly democratic um, in aspiration. Um, not in practice, of course, um, and it was also multi-ethnic in aspiration. So, in and all of these are uh, historical precursors of uh, today today's Ukraine. So, I think one can th there's there's a whole range of arguments why one can can see that as the kind of formation of of modern uh, uh, Ukrainian statehood. Yes, you, you make that very interesting point about how Ukraine is now aspiring to a, a new form of civic nationalism, which I, I, I guess borrows from largely from that period. Could, could you expand on that point? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, the, the, the problem in, in, in Eastern Europe for kind of a certain form of 19th and 20th century nation building uh, which is ethnic, right, is that there are no clear ethnic borders anywhere, right? This is, I mean, there are more, there are more ethnic borders now in, in, in a way, uh, because of, of uh, genocide, genocide, uh, ethnic cleansing, and so on going on throughout uh, the, well, in, in, in periods of the, the 20th century, and in particular, I mean, the, the, the uh, Holocaust um, instituted by the Germans is, uh, central to the uh, Ukrainization, if you if you like, or the 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 the, the diminishment of of um, the uh, Jewish um, population and Jewish culture there, but also then later um, uh, forced population movements of Germans out, uh, Poles out, Ukrainians from Poland in, and so on, uh, make it actually more. Uh, consistently, or somewhat more ethnically, less ethnically diverse, diverse than it used to be. Um, but uh, nevertheless, if you think of nation building as something which is uh, focused on uh, an ethnic group, uh, it's an extremely exclusionary um, project. And if you are in a situation where you have a very mixed population, uh, which is what the normal state of Ukrainian um, society has been and continues to be, uh, then you have a problem. Um, and the problem is, is that this will be will have to become exclusionary and very often violent. Um, the Ukrainian revolutionaries of 1917 saw that very clearly uh, and uh, dealt with that issue um, uh, up front. Uh, they did think that Ukraine was uh, this, 
was a state of the peoples of Ukraine, right? So it was uh, seen as a uh, inclusive and multi-ethnic nation, and multicultural nation. Um, there are, of course, moments when that flips, right? I mean, the, the 1930s become one where uh, Ukrainian fascism becomes quite influential, for example. Um, and of course, also already during the wars of independence, uh, there are uh, instances of um, of anti-Jewish violence in particular. Um, but in terms of the political aspirations of the project of the Ukrainian state in 1917-18 was certainly um, uh, focused on a state and on a territory rather than on an ethnos. Um, and that is very strongly the case uh, today as well. Uh, particularly institutionally. So if you're looking at um, at the Constitution, it's very clear that this is not uh, an ex exclusive uh, state of ethnic Ukrainians, uh, which excludes uh, Poles, Jews, and in particular Russians, right? Uh, but rather an inclusive uh, um, nation which focuses on a particular territory and a particular state formation. So democratic Ukraine is uh, what is highlighted. Of course, this again, there are of course groups who challenge that. There are groups who want a more ethnically uh, Ukrainian uh, nation, but they're quite uh, marginal uh, in, in contemporary Ukraine. Um, and the war has not actually changed that. Um, so, and, and, you know, the, the the leader of this nation in war uh, is, of course, a, a Ukrainian Jew who grew up um, speaking Russian. So that's yeah. an interesting part of that story. Yes, and you make, you make the point that he's the first president who was elected not on a regional basis. Yes, who managed to, to, uh, to transcend that kind of division uh, between... Well, east, east and west, if one one runs a very, very basic division, but uh, the more Russian speaking and the more Ukrainian speaking parts of the of the country. Um, and and uh, that was clearly very important for um, the once the war broke out uh, as well, or once the, the full scale invasion of of uh, Ukraine took place. Well, we've talked so far about mostly about uh, Ukrainian Ukrainian national story. Um, you reserve most of your criticism for some of the big Russian national myths in, in this book. Um, for example, um, and these are ones that are spread in the West, uh, as you said at the beginning, like, for example, Russia's right to Crimea, the conflation of Russian suffering in the Second World War to uh, Soviet or, or Ukrainian uh, suffering. And above all, as you put it, quote, that Russia never had an empire. It was one. And this this is quite central to to the latter part of the book. Could you expand on those points? Yes. Yeah, so to, to begin with the last one, the Russia never had an empire. It was one. Um, that, that makes kind of decolonization of of uh the dominant culture that is the coming to terms with the end of empire um very difficult uh because 
um, the division between what is the metropole and what is the colony is not always very clear. Very often it's very unclear. And there's huge anxieties about, about so that during the, the Chechen wars, uh, there were enormous anxieties about, well, if, if we let Chechnya go, uh, what's next? Who next will 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 leave? Will Siberia leave? Will we completely? You know, will will only Moscow region be left in the end? Because wh where is the borders of this uh, of this empire? So in a land empire, which from very early on was both both multinational uh, and integrated, um, uh, kind of non-Slavic uh, uh, lands, it's very difficult to. Uh, easily make the you know chop off the empire if you like um uh and and leave you know leave france after the french empire disintegrates or leave the uk although the uk might be a difficult thing in itself uh but you can still you know have uh, the metropole there after the empire disappears and even there people struggle you know many people struggle with uh um the end of empire uh, many decades after. So uh, so that point is, I think, really about um, one of the reasons why this is difficult in the Russian case, although not 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 impossible um, to um, to kind of construct a positive sense of post imperial self, um, if you like. The other point is, is really about driving home that Soviet history is not Russian history, but Soviet history is the history of the Soviet empire, which half of the population, you know, plus minus, depending on which which uh, period of that history was not Russian, but was other uh, groups. Um, but also the Russian empire is not just the history of Russia, but it's the history of the Russian empire where, you know, the Russians become a smaller and smaller group um, it, relative to the rest of the population as the empire expands and integrates non-Russian uh, regions. So this slippage between Russian empire and the Russian nation uh, and the slippage between Soviet and Russian uh, is something that's very widespread still. Um, it is, uh, I, I do a lot of work with uh, high school teachers. Um, the quote, Russian Revolution is a central part of uh, the high school exams in history here. Um, and it is an utterly uh, Russo-centric story, as are many textbooks, as is a lot of the ways um, historians were trained at university, both in this country, in Germany, uh, and in the United States, um, until recently, at least. So the, the kind of predominance of a of a russocentric imperial russian history uh is 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 very uh is still very strong and has some detrimental impact on understanding what is actually happening in this post soviet space which is a post imperial space or at least in part a post imperial space uh today well, yes, that leads to maybe conceptual difficulties for for a lot of us. But as you make um, as you make clear toward, toward towards the very end of the book, um, it had a very specific impact on uh, on Putin himself and and on Ukraine because of it. You you, you cite how um, his weakness as a dictator 
the impact of COVID um, and his, quote, sense of history is deeply entangled with his sense of self uh, were really the drivers for the invasion. Could you could you talk us through that? Yeah, so this this partially um, draws on earlier work I did on, on Putin's view of history, which I found quite puzzling at the beginning and then uh, increasingly um, threatening um, as time went on. Putin is a Russian imperialist. Um, as are many Russians, uh, and particularly many Russians who are interested in in history. Um, he uh, has constructed a very unapologetically imperial history of of Russia, which um, which is drawing in many ways on on kind of mainstream historiography in Russia, um, sort of on the right right end of the spectrum uh, politically, uh, but mainstream. Um, which essentially tells the entire history of the Russian Empire and then the Soviet Empire as the as the history of Russia, uh, and therefore, you know, lays claim on uh, the, the post-Soviet space as the as the heritage, as the rightful um, place to dominate uh, by Russia. So that's the one part of that argument. The other one, the more personal one, uh, which is about his uh, his increasing isolation during COVID uh, and his obsession with history during these COVID years. That's drawing very strongly on on the work of Mikhail Zigar, a Russian um, uh, journalist. Um, his book. Uh, War and Punishment just came out. Uh, I haven't read it yet. I've what I drew on is his earlier work and some of his immediate uh, publications. He's a very well connected um, Russian journalist who uh, t- very vividly told that story of of Putin in isolation, reading history books and being obsessed with it, with with that history and with his place in it. So he is, and he's he's verbalized that several times to to historians he wants to know you know what his place will be in the history books um and uh clearly he was not convinced that he had a positive place in the history books and he decided his positive place in the history books should be as you know the 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 man who took back ukraine and therefore uh essentially rebuilt the russian empire uh which had been lost from from uh, the perspective of Ruff, of Russian imperialists um, in 1991, so that's how the kind of the 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 Putin um, the Putin story and the um, the driving role of that man in how we get to the start of this war uh, um, made its way into this this book. Well, the inevitable final question for. Uh, anybody I talk to about this uh, about this war is how and when do you think it will end? <laughs> Sorry, I'm laughing. Uh, I don't know. Is the is the short uh, um, uh, the short answer? Um, I in the final chapter of the book I outline a few scenarios uh, which I think haven't changed yet. One scenario is, of course. Uh, a Russian victory that seemed very unlikely by the time I finished the manuscript, which was at the beginning of 2023. It seems even less likely now. 
Um, the other one is an outright victory of Ukraine uh, pushing uh, Russia out. Um, that does not at the moment seem particularly likely uh, given the slow progress of the uh, offensive, but it is only the start of August. So there's still a few months of the fighting season left, um, but it looks more and more like at least large sectors of Ukrainian territory will remain occupied for quite some time. And then the question becomes, will that will that mean it's a frozen conflict for a very long time? Will it become some sort of uh, Germany or Korea during the Cold War scenario with a division of the, the country uh, along very hard lines? Um, will uh, what will the fallout be in 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 Russia itself? Uh, will Putin uh, simply uh, uh, sit there and and continue on? So at the moment, there don't seem to be particularly um, good options uh, or very quick options uh, for this war to end. But uh in generally in general i think it, uh, studying the past give, is a bit easier because we have empirical evidence while studying the future we have none so um much of this is uh speculation yeah well uh to finish the podcast because this is a podcast about books as usual i've asked my guests to choose two to recommend to listeners so mark what have you chosen well, uh, you gave me actually a more detailed brief, which is one from my field and one not from my field. That's right. Um, so uh, the one from my field is Nicole Eaton, German Blood, German Blood, Slavic Soil, which is a new book, came out in 2023. It's a history of the Kaliningrad region or how Königsberg became Kaliningrad. Um, and that's, of course, a region which we might still want to pay some attention to because it is now a, a Russian exclave in Eastern Europe, um, which quite possibly will see tensions uh, around it in the future as well. And the other one is totally different. It's from 1978. Uh, it's a novella uh, by Tim Crabbe. It's called The Rider, and it's about bicycle racing. Okay. <laughs> That's a, that's a nice mix. Thank you. Um, so today I've been talking to Mark Adley about Russia's war against Ukraine, the whole story published by Melbourne University Publishing. Mark, thanks again for coming on. And thank you for having me.